0: If you like what you hear and you want to support the podcast, first of all, thank you. You can do so by following the link in the episode description. You can also find me on Instagram at pre Pod. Otherwise, enjoy. Jerusalem has long been the focal point of the still unsolved problem of Palestine. There is no Palestine, no Palestinians. There never was, there never will be. قول لي على taken a healthy amount of time off, and in that time, I've been able to go back and listen to the last few episodes that, uh, that I released as part of this podcast, and I kind of noticed something that that emerged as an unintended consequence of the material. I feel like maybe I've oversimplified the situation of the non-Muslim and heterodox Muslim communities of the region. I think you could be forgiven for listening to the last few episodes, listening to the preferential treatment that Christians and Jews received at the hands of Muhammad Ali Pasha, hearing about the laws that passed in favor of Christians and Jews during the Tanzimat. I think you could hear all of that and leave believing that for them, for those communities, everything was just just sunshine and roses. When it comes to the Christian communities in particular, it's easy to get lazy and lump them all into a box that has, you know, colonial puppet written all over it. But while the Ottoman Empire as a whole, and specifically the Muslim subjects, were adjusting to the massive changes that came with the Tanzimat, Christian communities had their own unique pains and challenges. By the 1850s, the challenges of Muslim and Christian inhabitants of this region were on the precipice of a very real and violent mess. I'm going to revisit these non-Muslim and heterodox communities, but this time maybe hopefully with a more empathetic lens. Part of Greater Syria in the Ottoman era was an area known as Mount Lebanon. It's a geographic region that encompasses part of modern day Lebanon and northern Palestine. Even within the already ethnically and linguistically diverse Ottoman Empire, I mean, this area stood out. <laughs> this is a legacy that the modern-day country of Lebanon has infamously inherited. Now, in case I have not already mentioned this, the Ottoman Sultanate was an ostensibly Sunni Muslim empire, and the area around Mount Lebanon was home to some members of this Sunni Muslim orthodoxy, so the same denomination as the Ottoman rulers. But in the mid-19th century, it was famously home to two other groups from within the Ottoman Mosaic. The first is a group we have already spoken about in some detail, and that's the Maronite Christians. And I've already spoken about the community, you know, in some detail in the last episode, mostly in the context of their relationship to the French. But like I said at the beginning of this episode, that description really reduces the Maronite community to the role of, I don't know, something like Colonial pawn. So I'm going to reintroduce the Maronites of Mount Lebanon. And through reintroducing them, I'll be able to introduce you to a series of events that, I mean, honestly turned the entire region right on its head. All right, so the first thing you need to know about the Maronites is that they are a Catholic denomination found primarily in the Mount Lebanon region. That continues to be the center of the community to this very day. In the early 19th century, the relationship between the Maronites and their neighbors could have been described as, I mean, not as antagonistic, but an environment of just passive resignation. Over centuries of Ottoman rule, a kind of quiet status quo emerged in Mount Lebanon, wherein the elites of the Maronites, the Greek Orthodox, the Sunni Muslim, and the Druze communities generally knew and respected one another, but also sort of resigned themselves to the reality that their personal space was always going to be corrupted and sullied by the presence of non-believers. Even though the Maronites were technically a proselytizing church and community, the church elite adhered to a social convention that developed in 19th century Mount Lebanon that turned religion into a, I mean, almost like a a forbidden subject of conversation between other elites. They made peace with the permanent impurity of their land. This generally harmonious arrangement made things much easier for Ottoman rulers, who in turn gave legal standing to the Maronites of Mount Lebanon. Now, this legal standing is very important to understand. It meant that the Ottoman government recognized the Maronite Church and subsequently tolerated the sovereignty that it exercised over its flock. Now, when I say that things were harmonious, I don't want to give you the wrong idea. I should be very, very clear in stating that Mount Lebanon was a very divided place, but just probably not in the way that you're thinking. You see, the elites of the various religious communities were deeply reliant upon one another. They had extensive social and business dealings. However... Each of these elite groups exerted massive amounts of influence over peasant communities of their own denomination or peasant communities of other denominations. So yes, Mount Lebanon was an incredibly divided place, but some of the more recent scholarship has revealed that the divisions of Mount Lebanon was not one that should be divided or not one that should be primarily understood sectarian divisions. In fact, the most obvious and overt divisions that characterized Mount Lebanon were divisions of class. So it would have been normal in the Mount Lebanon of of the early 19th century to see the Maronite elites exercising this enormous power over Maronite peasants, and maybe even over Sunni and Shia peasants as well. Their relationship with the other notables The other sectarian groups, however, could actually have been described as cordial, pleasant even. All right, so that is Mount Lebanon's Maronites. The second group that, together with the Maronites, form the majority of Mount Lebanon's population is one that I've really only mentioned in passing in Season 1, and they are the Druze. The Druze are a, a minority within a minority within a minority. Theologically, they are a sub-branch of the Ismaili sect of Shia Islam. And now, despite their you know, heterodoxy as viewed from the perspective of the Orthodox Sunni Muslim Ottoman Empire, they were viewed by both the Ottomans and by the locals as part of the Muslim demographic. Now, at this juncture, it's really not their theology that is of interest to us. The Druze, being a minority sect, had developed certain peculiar social traditions to maintain their survival as a, as a unique social unit. And some of these qualities you'll recognize from other minorities around the world. So, for example, they were and, and remain to this very day quite strict about the subject of marriage to outsiders. But that's a common one with minorities who fear the slow grind of annihilation by assimilation. But some of the other traditions really are unique to the Druze. I mean, for one, they tended to live in nearly homogenous enclaves that were almost always in mountain regions in the Levant. They do not proselytize their beliefs. So one must be born into the community in order to be Druze. The result of these practices, when repeated over hundreds of years, is that they are both a unique ethno-familial group and a religious community. But perhaps their most significant and peculiar quality as far as the Ottoman central authorities were concerned was the fact that they absolutely rejected any outside influence or intervention. As often as possible, they strove to be completely autonomous. In their fanatical commitment to independence... They were maybe only second to the Bedouin. And this is something that the Ottoman Empire knew very well and had a ton of experience with. I mean, Zahir al-Omar, Jazar Pasha, the Ottoman central government in the era of the Tanzimat, everyone had a hard time trying to exert power or influence over the Druze. They all tried and they all failed. And this is despite the fact that when the Druze were not fighting outside forces, they were very often busy fighting among themselves. But by the mid-19th century, even the Druze could not totally isolate themselves from the combined impact of European colonialism and Ottoman centralization and reform. And initially, it looked like perhaps maybe some of the circumstances of the period may have something to offer the Druze. Alright, so so we've got this Mount Lebanon divided between Maronites and Druze. Now, I said a few minutes ago that the sensitive ecosystem that existed in Mount Lebanon was about to be turned upside down, and I stand by that. Well, I think the best place to start is to introduce a new actor to the stage just to show how long foreign intervention has been turning Mount Lebanon into a bottomless pit of fire and despair and blood and sorrow. In November 1819, 20 years before the start of the Tanzimat, a new force emerged to throw its hat into the fray and leave its mark upon the Arab Ottomans. And this new force, they came with a zeal and a message that produced consequences that are still felt to this very day. In November 1819, the Middle East received its first batch of evangelical Christian missionaries from the faraway land of the United States of America. The date is significant here. You see, less than a decade prior to the arrival of the American missionaries, America had successfully completed a large-scale ethnic cleansing campaign of its own Native Indian population. The then still young American state was in this rapid stage of expansion, and the decades long effort to convert and civilize the savage was far too slow for a sufficient number of policymakers, and so removal of the Indian was the next best option. But to the Protestant missionaries of the Eastern Seaboard, this was this was an incredible tragedy. And, and the tragedy of it was that it was a missed opportunity to convert thousands to the light of the Gospel. And for this reason, these missionaries wrote lamentations about the, the tragedy that was the depopulation of America, of its Indian population, but that was in the past. And their commitment to their evangelizing mission, which was colored by their belief the world was rapidly ticking toward the final hour, pushed them to look for new pastures. And this is how the first American missionaries found themselves aboard ships that were all ready to make landfall in Palestine. They arrived with goals that were, in some cases, contrary to the desires of even their own government. And yet they arrive, nonetheless with the protection of that same government and nearly every major European power. This chapter in the history of the Middle East, it's worthy of a Shakespearean comedy. You see, while the clash that you may be anticipating is one between Arab Muslim and Evangelical American Christian, That is not, in fact, the clash that unfolds. The Americans set to work first upon what they perceived to be the heterodox Christian populations. Their first act was to preach to the Maronite faithful about the deceptions of the Pope and the inherent truth to be found in the the Protestant interpretation of the Bible, They broke with the quietest approach that dominated public life in Mount Lebanon. In a book masterfully titled Artillery of Heaven, the author, uh, Usama Maqdisi, puts it as succinctly as possible, saying, and listen to this because this should be on a billboard somewhere. Quote, The missionaries spoke loudly, but they did not listen, nor did they heed the many signals if not outright pleas, from their native informants, guides, and teachers to avoid what they believe to be unnecessary controversy. End quote. Now to fully understand the significance of this historic moment, you need to appreciate that the Maronite Church was a deeply ingrained indigenous and organic part of the pluralistic Ottoman universe, and the American mission of a unified Christian message was very disruptive. Over a few decades, the Americans wielded their enormous political clout and significant resources, building dozens of schools with hundreds of students. Their institutions, attended mostly by Orthodox and Maronite Christians, were successful in propelling Christians to higher and higher stations despite the fact that by this point, they had actually largely failed in converting the local population. They were successful, though, in permanently antagonizing the Maronite church itself. Now I'm going to pause the American contribution to this mess for a moment. My goal really was just to introduce them to the scene and let you know what was happening once they arrived. But I'm going to make this very abrupt pause, because I need to give you a general lay of the land. So we now have a Mount Lebanon with nearly every major power involved in one way or another. And one has to always keep in mind that in the 19th century, the primary rivals of the European powers were other European powers. So, we have the French, who have been courting the Maronite community for a very long time, perceiving them as their civilizational cousins. You can expect, naturally, that the British were not very happy to see the French making these inroads with the Maronite community. I mean, by this time, the French were doing so well that they were carving out an almost exclusive sphere of influence in Mount Lebanon. Well, to try and counterbalance this the British began making inroads with the Druze. Here, they thought, is a minority that could help extend British influence in the region. But the British plan it lacked the coherence and dedication of the French Maronite project. For starters, the Druze were not Christians, and so in the minds of the 19th century British policymaker, The Druze lacked the, I don't know, let's call it the racial pedigree that would entitle them to full support, the likes of which we saw between the Russians and Orthodox Christians or between the French and the Maronites or with the Italians and the Catholics and and so on. Sure, I mean, they could be converted, but that was a very long play. Well, something that may be surprising to most listeners is that the Americans also empathized with the Druze in their power struggle versus the Maronites for precisely this play, that is, to eventually convert the Druze. Up until the 1850s, the Americans looked at the Druze as the community which possessed the greatest potential for mass conversion. And so they dedicated this significant amount of time, energy, resources to the Druze community. They developed a level of sympathy for the Druze that probably seemed know, pretty intense in contrast to the British lukewarm support that the Druze were getting. As one historian has put it, quote Although the Druze were aligned with the British at various points, the alliance that had developed was not to the same caliber of the French alliance with the Maronites, and reflected the difference in imperial strategies. End quote. Now, I know this is starting to sound like a Guy Ritchie movie with, you know, 400 different characters, but bear with me here. You have the French, who support the Maronites, and the British and the Americans, who support the Druze. All of this at a time where the Ottoman Empire is in the midst of its most ambitious reform project. Suddenly, those divisions of class that I mentioned earlier were looking more and more like divisions of of religion. In the immediate aftermath of the Hatti proclamation, the situation in and around Mount Lebanon was tense. So, so tense. In fact, the situation in Greater Syria was tense. I'll let historian Andrew Delatola walk us through it. Quote, tensions between Christians and Muslims, the latter viewing the Christians as loyal to France and Russia, heightened following the establishment of the hath Additionally, it was becoming increasingly evident that the social fabric of the Ottoman Empire was slowly unraveling. On April 26, 1856, the French consul in Aleppo wrote that the city was agitated. The Muslims were arming themselves, and there was a general sense of panic among the Christian population and government officials. Although the Christian populations were being provided protection by the French administration in the Syrian provinces, they were not without fault. The French consul in Aleppo wrote that, this is the French consul speaking, the Christians in the city have become embedded in scandal and misconduct, and they do not hold religion as close as their Muslim neighbors the consul described their actions as being conducted with impunity, abusing the protections offered to them by European powers, and they do little to convey a positive image of Christianity to the Muslim population. Quote. And in a situation so combustible, sometimes all you need is a tiny spark to ignite what becomes a raging inferno. And suddenly, the spark came. After a century and a half, it's, it's hard to pinpoint precisely when the first shot was fired. Though with something like what I'm about to share with you, I bet it wasn't easy for contemporary observers to spot the first shot across the bow either. In 1856, right after the Hatihmayun Declaration, Christian peasants across modern-day Lebanon rose up against Druze landowners. And though their motivations were more economic than sectarian, it certainly came with a sectarian flavor. Now, for four slow, tense years, Mount Lebanon was just a massive pot set to boil. These years were characterized by a palatable hostility in the air, The air was just thick with it. And then in 1860, something finally snapped. First came clashes between the Druze and the Maronites around Mount Lebanon. Like I said moments ago, it's just so hard to determine where, when, why, how the first punch was thrown. And honestly, the truth is that by the end of it, it almost doesn't matter, because very quickly, these clashes spread all over the region. According to historian William L. Cleveland, it was the Druze who struck first in an attempt to dislodge the Maronites from their position of power. Power acquired through French patronage, but quickly these small clashes erupted into something easily resembling a civil war. What transpired was one of the worst explosions of sectarian violence the Ottoman Mashriq had ever seen. The fighting, which was originally confined to Mount Lebanon, spread through to Damascus and other parts of the Levant. To an oblivious onlooker, and many colonial accounts of the time could be described in that category, this appeared to just come out of nowhere. But what they were witnessing were two decades of resentment, fueled by imperial meddling set against a backdrop of wildly unpopular Ottoman reforms being bottled up into a single moment of rage. Rage against the Ottoman government, the high port, the sultan himself, the supposed protector of Muslims who had seemingly abandoned the faithful in favor of Christians. Rage against the Christians who used to come to notable Muslims for protection, but were now slowly securing wealth with the backing and protection of the ambassadors of the great powers. Rage and resentment that suddenly the revealed law, the sharia, which should govern all worldly affairs, has been abandoned so as to create a society that was more equitable for a people that you're not even sure want to be part of the Ottoman nation that the government seems to be trying so hard to construct. Historian George Antonius, writing all the way back in the 1930s, had this to say. Quote, In the late spring of 1860, Trouble broke out in the form of Druze attacks on parties of Christians in southern Lebanon. The Druze peasantry, acting in concert with their own feudal lords, organized a general onslaught on Christians, peasantry, gentry, and clergy alike, and although the aggressors were far inferior in numbers, they were better armed and more warlike. In many places the Christians offered a heroic resistance. In others, they retaliated as murderously as they were attacked. Thousands of Christians were overwhelmed or driven to seek refuge in the towns. The wave of hatred spread to other parts of the country. Early in July, the Muslims of Damascus rose in a body and, rushing the quarter inhabited by the Christians, committed one of the most savage massacres in history. End quote. Now, Antonius puts the death toll at 11,000, but modern historians tend to dismiss this as a bit of an exaggeration. Most sources I have looked at put the figure at a staggering 3,000. We cannot talk about 1860 without talking about the role of religion. And If you've been listening to the last two episodes, I shouldn't have to be clarifying this, but I will anyway. Despite the obvious religious undertones, what took place on the streets of Damascus and Beirut was not a theological battle between Christianity and Islam. And this is a point that has to be clarified because many historians have tried to paint it as such. For a more comprehensive understanding of the motives behind the attacks, historian Osama Makdisi writes that In addition to religion, the fighting was characterized by a struggle over resources, land, and status, and most of all, by conflicting interpretations about the meaning of European-mediated Tanzimat. In the case of Damascus in 1860, a general pattern of Muslim financial indebtedness to Christians and the significance of the destruction of many Christian-owned looms by the rioters underscored the nature of economic dislocation of craftsmen that may well have been a factor in the riot. Equally significant was the fact that Russian, French, Austrian, Belgian, and American consulates were attacked and that foreign missions and missionaries were targeted as well." End quote. Now, having said that, Muslims and Christians of the Levant had, for centuries, lived together, shopped at the same markets, negotiated tenancy agreements, and for centuries, Christians trusted and relied upon the Islamic courts, in many cases, placing more trust in them than in the courts that they had at their disposal within their millet. Suddenly, all of that seemed like a distant memory. I mean, simply put, The Muslims of the Levant must have felt like, in the blink of an eye, they were seeing their whole world go up in flames. And despite this, historian Osama Maqdusi, who I just quoted a moment ago, he closes off his point on the 1860 violence with a very important note. Quote, Many Muslims helped Christians escape from the fury of the anti-Christian mob. Hid them in their houses and took to the streets to curb the bloodletting. End quote. See, even in moments of madness, even in moments of complete unrepentant carnage, you can always find instances of mercy and humanity. And the events of 1860 are just no exception. That mercy and humanity was well enough for some of the Christians of Mount Lebanon and Damascus because the French, the sworn protectors of greater Syria's Christians, were caught totally flat-footed. I mean, they were just not prepared for something like this. And the Ottomans, for their part, were equally incapable of quelling the violence. I mean, when all was said and done, nearly 3,000 Christian inhabitants and, you know, undoubtedly hundreds at least of Druze, were dead. And though were it not for the intervention of one man, that number could have been much, much higher. Now, I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent here, but bear with me. I, I think it might be worth it. In the year 2000... I went to Jordan for the first time, or, or at least the first time that mattered. I was 13 years old at the time, and, and I had not been to the Middle East since I was two years old. And to call this trip a transformative moment in my life would be the, a massive understatement. It was the first time in 11 years that my parents got to see their siblings. And it was the first time that my siblings and I got to experience, you know, quote, our world. It was also a transformative time in Jordan's history. King Hussein, who had ruled for nearly 50 years, had just passed away the year before. And his son, Abdullah, had recently ascended to the throne. And uh, (laughs) on the taxi ride from the airport to my uncle's house, my brother turned to my cousin and asked, So how's the new king? And my cousin... (laughs) turns back to him and says in this honeyed voice, كل الملوك كل واحد أحسن من الثاني which means all of the kings are great. Each one is better than the last. And my mom in the taxi just chuckled to herself. She realizes that she hadn't taught her naive Canadian children that these are not really the kinds of questions that you ask in a taxi. There are many more memorable moments of that trip. One of the things that I will never forget was the soundtrack to that summer. The early 2000s are widely considered as a sort of golden age of Arabic music. And there was one song in particular that was on heavy, heavy rotation. In every taxi, every restaurant, on every channel... One song had really taken the air world by storm. And the song begins with a slow build-up and then sort of erupts like, like a like the build-up of a of a of a hurricane or a tsunami or something. Its rhythm was like nothing else at the time. I mean, I'm I'm not a very musical person, which is kind of why I'm struggling to describe this. I don't really have the language to explain this to you. But the song is intense, and yet it captivated the entire Arabic-speaking world. And what's even more remarkable about this, that when you consider that the song was performed by three Algerians, and sung in an Algerian accent that nobody in Jordan could understand, you couldn't understand anything except one word, or rather, one name. Abdul Qadir. This song was an ode to a warrior, a leader, a spiritual and subsequently national figure who even 150 years after his death still captures the imagination of people around the world. And he's a character in this story as well. For decades, Amir Abdul Qadir al-Jazairi Fought a war of resistance against the French. He was eventually captured and imprisoned, but the nobility of his character sort of just captured the imagination of the West in a way that no Muslim had done since maybe since Salah-Din. The French eventually exiled Abdel Qadr to Greater Syria to live out his final days. And that is where he comes into this story. Amir Abdul Qadr, at this point a fifty two year old exile, swooped into the mayhem of the Damascus violence to save thousands of Christians from certain death. Historians believe that were it not for his intervention, an additional ten thousand Christians would have lost their lives. Eighteen sixty proved to be a pivotal moment. In the history of not just Mount Lebanon, but the entire region. In the immediate aftermath of the violence, the great powers of Europe once again dragged the Ottoman Empire to the principal's office and proposed solutions to the problem of Mount Lebanon. The final compromise produced a new type of regime. In 1861, the region surrounding Mount Lebanon was transformed. Into a mutasarrafate, and eventually a wilayeh, that is an administrative unit that reports directly to the high port and is led by someone who, and this is very important, is not from the region. One of the primary motivations behind this sort of administrative shakeup was to minimize the influence of the Druze in local politics and, as an immediate consequence, then empower the Maronites. 1860, one could easily say that the Druze were the biggest losers. And so as for the Druze, the civil war significantly weakened their position in Mount Lebanon. Many of them, including members of powerful and notable Druze families, packed up their things and end up leaving Mount Lebanon altogether. Many of them will go on to settle in the Haran region of Syria. Decades later, one of their descendants, Sultan al-Atrash, will play a vital role in the history of the region. That's a story for another day. Now if you just, for a moment, try to put yourself in the place of someone living in the region at the time, stare out and just just take stock of the situation in 1860, it's hard not to be at least a little overwhelmed I mean, for starters, everyone, from the peasants to the notables, all the way up to the ministers of the sultan himself, can tell you that Ottoman sovereignty exists only on paper. The empire, by this point, is absolutely inundated with missionary schools, which have been proliferating since the beginning of the 1840s. And you have super powerful ambassadors who when they are not trying to convert the Muslim population, are using these schools to exert their influence over religious minorities. You have massive levels of European pressure forcing you to push for greater rights for the Christian minorities while your centralization campaigns erode the autonomy and freedom that the Muslim populations enjoyed for hundreds of years. And yet, despite all these efforts, there is an ever-expanding list of minority communities looking to split from the empire, often with inspiration and financial backing from one of the great powers who maybe earlier that morning was sitting around the negotiating table with you. When that isn't happening, resentment is brewing within the Muslim community as the once preferred millet now laments their meteoric fall from grace. Now that is a bleak picture. Well, if you have any confidence in the ingenuity of our species, then you won't be surprised to know that in the midst of the chaos, you always find some minds working to help those around them make sense of the world. Human beings will never, ever surrender in their quest to live a life that is meaningful. And this region is no exception. In the next part of this episode, we will see how the violence of 1860 became the launch point for giving birth to the modern Arab nation.